game 840 here. So there was one big example that I, I wanted to share to elaborate on my incoherence point. So I noticed that philosophers and intellectuals and people who are verbally gifted often put a very high priority on the coherent response. And my argument was that the world is so complicated that there are so many more factors than what we can possibly see, understand, comprehend, and, and detect. Because we're operating from within bodies that you know are blinding us to things that are going on in life because we have all sorts of emotions, early childhood imprinting, that we all have a belief system, right? We all have a hero system and anything that we hold sacred, anything in our hero system, right, which is going to be blind to the subjective, possibly fictitious nature of our hero system. So my point was often the response that looks coherent is in fact you know, a very coherent response. You just won't realize it for, for a long time. And so I just thought of an example that uh, I wanted to share earlier. Come on, mate. Give me give me a nice flat. There we go. I just thought, thought of an example that I didn't share on the show earlier. And that is, of course, we're talking about Fiorello LaGuardia. All right. He was a very successful mayor of New York City. He was Italian. He was he was Jewish. And around 1933, all right, he needed funds from the, the from the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration. And the Roosevelt administration was going to deny him funds because they absolutely hated Moses. So Moses was the Robert Moses was was the bloke who was operating the, the parks. He was you know a great bureaucratic fighter. So Robert A. Caro wrote a very powerful, influential, and famous book about Robert Moses called The Power Broker. So Robert Moses, a great New York City bureaucrat and infighter, right, had not gotten along with Franklin Delano Roosevelt when Franklin was the governor of New York. And then when Roosevelt became president of the United States, he told LaGuardia that federal funds were going to be withheld from New York City unless he fired Robert Moses from a particular position. Robert Moses said, fine, fire me from that position. I will then resign from everything, right? All my posts in the city. And Robert Moses had tremendous personal popularity with the, the people of New York. They liked all the parks that he was building. So LaGuardia was between a rock and a hard place. And so he came out with an incoherent response. He told Roosevelt administration, yes, uh, Robert Moses was going to resign, but he couldn't force Moses to do that because it would just be too devastating and it would make Fiorello LaGuardia look bad. So Eventually, there's infighting going back and forth. LaGuardia is telling the Roosevelt, yes, yes, I'm going to fire him, but he never actually does. So the funds from the federal government keep flowing. And then when the funds finally get delayed and things come to a head, Robert Moses leaks the, the letter from the Roosevelt administration, making it clear that, it, that its legislation was, was primarily designed to just get one man, Robert Moses, out of a job. And there was a tremendous public outcry Robert Moses won the infighting, but Fiorello LaGuardia won by not taking sides in the dispute and by telling each side what they needed to hear. And he found you know, a way through an impossible situation. And I think that is often uh, the, the reality of life. We're faced with impossible choices and we just kind of muddle through doing the best we can, perhaps even telling one side one thing and telling another side another thing and that these two things are incompatible. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, depending on circumstance. But we're frequently getting squeezed by reality. We're getting squeezed by life. And we come out and we come out with some incoherent response. And I think it's a response that works if it works, right? if it's effective, if it allows you to sleep at night, if it makes you more effective in life, if it strengthens the your relationships with the people most important to you, if it helps you to become more coherent internally or more integrated internally rather than uh, fragmented internally. So the world's incredibly complicated place and a lot of the responses that we that we you know may think are incoherent, given all the complexity all around us, are actually you know, pretty doggone coherent. So I just I'm reading the new book on 
J. Edgar Hoover, and he was part of a fraternity at college. And I thought just is, is a great, a great uh, summary for, for what's going here um, here in this live stream. The place where the sacrament of brotherhood is administered, the word of brotherhood is preached, the power of brotherhood is felt, the spirit of brotherhood is manifested, and the love of brotherhood is revealed. Okay, I mean, it's not exactly Shakespeare, but it's uh, pretty doggone good. Uh, here's a little bit from Richard Spencer, Mark Brahman earlier. And, um... Enoch, and it had uh, it had all the kind of leaders. I mean, wherever you want to say religion, leader, quality person. No, that's true, but it, it just it has kind of true. It, it inquires like energy and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, like I don't think you know Ricky Vaughn was a high quality person. Um, but yeah, that's true. I mean, I, and I can see that happening again. I, I just feel like there's a little. Though it, I guess it does require the endorsement of uh, somewhat intelligent leaders, which it did have in 2016, right? Yeah, yeah. So Kevin McCarthy simply just placed in an impossible situation, only has a five-vote majority. He had to make deals with the devil. And on his 15th attempt, 15th attempt, he got through a Speaker of the House. And again, this is reality. We often have to make a lot of very painful deals with unsavory characters to try to achieve anything in life. Yeah. It, had, it had you, and it had yeah. uh, it had um, Enoch, and it had uh -huh. uh, it had all the kind of leaders. I mean, whatever you want to say about uh, England, he, he is somewhat intelligent. I mean, he's not an idiot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's a weirdo, but he's intelligent. Yes. Um, you know, so and I think that the, so that a broader kind of populist activist community on, on uh, Twitter rallied around figures that did have this quality. You know what I mean? Or some of them did at least, right? Um, so uh, could the band come back together again uh, for Trump? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess nothing's impossible, but uh, I, it's interesting that uh, because everyone, it seems like is still the band come back together Twitter, again. though, that was like really kind of uh, pivotal, pivotal, at least to the more radical element of that movement. Um, you know, guys like uh, Enoch and uh, Fuentes' band still. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know what's going on there. I, I think that part of it is, I think part of it is that, um, because I, I was listening, uh, I probably, you guys have, heard this as well uh too but i was listening to um i think it, it was uh it was broadcast uh two months old so probably you guys are familiar with all these uh details but uh twitter uh the amount of information that twitter keeps is pretty astonishing or has access to um so if you you know so if you have made an account um uh a previous account or you've made multiple accounts uh twitter knows right so you can't like just have yeah. multiple stock accounts um and i think that that so i think a lot of the people that are not being allowed back on are probably people that were engaged in platform manipulation spamming or organizing troll armies or this sort of thing or had multiple accounts so guys like so uh, i mean there, there are other reasons obviously. yeah so there are rules you can't break in life without very severe consequences and then there are rules that you can't break in life without these severe consequences so you have to know you know what are the rules i can break what are the rules that i can't break and spamming platform manipulation not something that social networks look at kindly obviously why nick Fuentes wouldn't be let on because of the kanye west thing but um but absent that, I mean, who knows if those guys hadn't been, you know, organizing troll armies and stuff like that and engaged in platform manipulation, which evidently they were. I mean, and it's not something I'm, I'm not something it's not something we should complain about uh, as, as far as 2016 was concerned. But I think that's a reason a lot of the guys are not being allowed back on. You know what I mean? Yes. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I would use the example of Keith Woods. I mean, he because his uh, rhetoric is relatively non-inflammatory, I think, oh, yeah. uh, politically, but he hasn't been allowed back on the platform. And it has to do with the fact that uh, he was engaged in and that was the reason he was banned is was for platform manipulation. Um, so I think it, I, but I, I, I doubt that it. is kind of fascinating because a lot of people have been let on. I mean, England's on Laura Loomer is back on some of these yeah. crazy cutards I've, that I I remember from back in the day or back on. Like, it's kind of weird that Keith Woods is an on absent the fact that he was literally engaging in platform denial, which he clearly was, all these sock accounts attacking you, mostly it seemed. Yeah, but I, I doubt that he's an isolated case, though. Mm -hmm. And some of these guys, like, I remember at the time that they're like, and this used to be more of a phenomenon, but it is still a phenomenon, but the, the accounts are less radical and they're kind of alt-right accounts. But there's all these accounts on the DR or in the alt-light uh, that are just like, I mean, who the fuck are these people? You don't know who they, they are, but they have these massive followings, right? And they're just tweeting all day and they're... And they're yeah. Uh, you know, they're uh, politicos or they're politically oriented, um, but you've never heard of them. And you'll just encounter these massive accounts um, once in a while that have all these followers. And um, and I think that so I think a lot of those types of accounts um, uh, have also have not come back on. 
You know what I mean? Because, and I think it's probably because they were also engaged in platform manipulation, that sort of thing. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So platform manipulation, not a winning formula for getting along with a social network. All right. Interesting article here by Joshua Green for Bloomberg uh, Business Week. And he he makes a lot of points about Ron DeSantis and, and none of them trouble me. Like they all strike me as it's like really great things. So let's uh, let's see what we can do here. Play a little bit. Uh, Joshua Green, he's a man of the left, but nothing he says, nothing he says here is uh, is bothering me. I, I think it's all you know, good things. The secret to DeSantis' success is ignore Trump and attack business. The Florida governor's attacks on business leaders who promote progressive values are finding traction with the Republican grassroots. Written by Joshua Green for Bloomberg Businessweek. Narrated by Michael David Axtell. Two days before the midterm election, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis sauntered on stage at a boisterous rally in an airplane hangar in Sarasota, and as Donald Trump likes to do, began tossing baseball caps to the crowd. The similarities with the 45th president didn't end there. DeSantis mimicked Trump's braggadocio, touting his own 2018 victory as probably the most consequential governor's election in the history of the state of Florida. He even channeled Trump's predilection for claiming that unnamed supporters routinely approached him weeping with gratitude for the unswerving strength of his leadership in the face of elite liberal hostility. As usual, it involved his skeptical response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Sometimes, DeSantis told the crowd, people will just start crying, saying my business would just have gone under if you had not stood up for me. Trump famously reoriented Republican politics away from Reagan-esque optimism and toward a fed-up populist grievance. So this is a left-wing reporter who wrote a book on Steve Bannon a few years ago, and he doesn't really land any punches on, on Ron DeSantis. He's just kind of blown away by how effective Ron DeSantis is. So ignoring someone like Ron DeSantis is vis-a-vis Trump is often the best strategy. Like Ron DeSantis, as opposed to Trump, seems to be thoughtful and strategic and calculating and hardworking and effective. But had far more power than anyone realized until his run for president. DeSantis may be his best student. His public persona is built on projecting truculent contempt toward the people the MAGA masses despise most, including former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Dr. Anthony Fauci. And like Trump, he has a gift for sensing what people are primed to get mad about. In Sarasota and other stops along his Don't Tread on Florida tour the weekend before the midterms, he rattled off a lengthy list of oppressors, liberal politicians who refuse to enforce immigration laws, school boards teaching kids to hate our country, government bureaucrats demanding mask and vaccine mandates and job-killing shutdowns, and woke ideologues instituting radical ideas about gender and sexuality. DeSantis said he was striking back against the last group when he signed a controversial law in March restricting public school teachers from discussing gender identity and sexual orientation in the classroom. Critics dubbed it the Don't Say Gay law. But the enemy that drew the loudest applause in Sarasota was one that, until very recently, ranked as perhaps the GOP's greatest ally, corporate America. DeSantis is at the fore of a growing crowd of conservatives who insist that big business has fallen under the sway of perfidious liberal social reformers. He recounted how he went after Walt Disney, one of Florida's largest employers, when it criticized the Don't Say Gay law. DeSantis didn't just strip Disney of its special tax status. He also publicly demonized the company, claiming it had aligned itself with left-wing politicians bent on teaching a first grader that they could change their gender. So I haven't paid a great deal of attention to Ron DeSantis. It's just what I notice is that what he does seems to be effective, and he seems to keep winning these fights. He seems to select these fights carefully, then he seems to win them, and people then are scared to cross him. He added, sexualizing these young kids is wrong. The lusty booing this remark elicited testified to DeSantis's skill at inciting new grievances. Disney's firing of Chief Executive Officer Bob Tapic two weeks later only enhanced DeSantis's aura in conservative circles. 
You've made business and the financial markets into the new playing field in the culture wars, says Andy Puzder, who was briefly Trump's nominee for Secretary of Labor and has advised the DeSantis administration in its current job leading an investment firm. But, though DeSantis's pugilistic style and even his mannerisms owe an obvious debt to Trump, and he probably wouldn't be governor if Trump hadn't endorsed him in 2018, DeSantis rarely mentions the man. After months of suing over this perceived ingratitude, Trump finally attacked him as Ron DeSanctimonious at a rally right before the midterms. Not his best effort, but not entirely off the mark. So ignoring Trump seems to be the most effective path forward for Republicans who want the nomination, such as Ron DeSantis. DeSantis ignored him. As his national profile has risen, DeSantis has been described by mainstream media outlets as Trump with discipline and Trump with a brain. But what really distinguishes him is his judgment. Even as he whipped up populist furor in Sarasota, he avoided the issues Trump harps on most. He didn't question the 2020 election results or suggest that voting machines were hacked or spout QAnon conspiracy theories. It took another 48 hours for the importance of this distinction to fully register. On election night, the Republican red wave never materialized. Candidates Trump had backed fared especially poorly. Ron DeSantis seems to have the discipline that Donald Trump so badly, badly, badly lacks. And much better judgment and much better execution and much better strategic discipline. In the 13 races in battleground states where an election denier ran for governor, secretary of state, or attorney general, every one of them lost. DeSantis, on the other hand, won re-election in a landslide. And he didn't merely crush his Democratic opponents. He won voters Republicans weren't seriously expected to compete for, carrying a majority of Hispanic votes, and winning in places such as deep blue Miami-Dade County, which Hillary Clinton took by 30 points in the 2016 presidential election. That's incredible that Ron DeSantis won Dade County, which Hillary Clinton won by 30 points. I mean, that's unbelievable. And how has he done it? By taking the battle to woke corporations. That seems to be a political winner with independence. In the process, he swept the GOP to supermajorities in both houses of the Florida legislature, ensuring that he'll be one of the most powerful governors in the country in 2023. When DeSantis called the results the greatest Republican victory in the history of the state of Florida, it wasn't just Trump-style hyperbole. To pretty much everyone's surprise, the midterm election results showed Trump's solipsistic brand of politics to be a much-diminished force. For the third cycle in a row, Republicans underperformed in an election that revolved heavily around him. No one was more enhanced by the latest drubbing than DeSantis, who polls show has emerged as Trump's main rival for the 2024 GOP nomination, if, as expected, he opts to run. Experience has taught that writing off Trump is unwise, and governors who seem headed for the White House on a rocket ship often blow up on the launch pad. Even so, DeSantis's showing offers a glimpse of what successful post-Trump Republican politics might look like, still combative and polarizing, still consumed with grievances, but less centered on Trump and more animated by issues and enemies that resonate beyond the MAGA base. Yeah, so just centering on Donald Trump, the human being, has a limitation. Like, everyone gets tired, all right? So charisma, as I shared that definition the other day, is where you perform a miracle. And that's what Donald Trump did winning the 2016 presidential campaign. When you perform a miracle, you then get more followers and resources. So you can then keep doing what seems like the impossible until you stop being able to do the impossible. So in 2018, the Republicans were crushed in the midterms. And then 2020, Trump was defeated. And so now his charisma seems much less strong than it was in the wake of his 2016 victory. What DeSantis has done as governor, and what he's aiming to do in Florida's upcoming legislative session, could have a lot more influence on Republican politics than Trump's next controversy or legal travail. As DeSantis moves toward a possible presidential bid, he's expanding his fight against corporate America, this time going after big asset managers and Wall Street banks. And a great comment from the chat, a lot of Republicans... A lot of people on the right are addicted to losing. Yeah, 
they, they would rather posture, they would rather fundraise, they would rather you know, get on Fox News. They have a lot of other agendas aside from being effective. Right? Do you optimize for truth? Do you optimize for effectiveness or do you optimize for showboating? Do you optimize for attention seeking? Right? Good things to ask in life. An attack over the summer, he declared masters of the universe are using their economic power to impose policies on the country that they could not do at the ballot box. He returns to the theme in his swaggering victory speech on election night. We will fight the woke in corporate America, he said. Florida is where woke goes to die. Conjuring up a distant, shadowy financial elite and vowing to fight it on behalf of the little guy is textbook populist politics. It's just kind of extraordinary that this textbook, you know, popular politics is being done so effectively by politicians on the right. You just don't expect this, but this is the winning formula going forward to become the party of the working class and the middle class, and the Democrats have become the party of the elite and the underclass. And another move borrowed from Trump, who made big banks and famous financiers into useful villains in his 2016 presidential campaign. DeSantis is betting he can generate enough resentment about woke capital to keep his momentum going. If he's right, he may go from emulating Trump to succeeding him. Yeah, being a populist, like being against big corporations, uh, being against big corporations trying to socially engineer society, that's probably a very winning formula, not just with Republicans, but with enough independence to win the next presidential election. Even before his midterm triumph, DeSantis had pulled ahead of other Republican White House aspirants. Remember how effective Donald Trump became at the last part of the 2016 campaign? Like the last month, he really honed his message, draining the swamp, you know, taking on the elites. Is an incredibly effective discipline Trump that I don't think we've seen since. Uh, Ron DeSantis you know, kind of reminds me of Donald Trump's final month prior to the November 2016 presidential election, like on message, disciplined, ruthless. By figuring out how to build an independent profile in a party that centers almost entirely on Trump. During his presidency, Trump redefined what constitutes being a Republican in good standing. Where it once meant embracing certain policy commitments, Trump changed the definition to whether or not one supported him personally and fed his alpha male self-image. Because his popularity with Republican voters was almost absolute, most lawmakers complied. But this created a problem for politicians hoping one day to replace him. Every Republican presidential hopeful understood that the quickest way to gain attention and build a national following was to jump into the big, loud, messy culture fights that constitute most Fox News programming and excite grassroots conservatives. The problem. So the culture wars have overwhelmingly been a losing battleground for Republicans over the past 40 years. They're consistently lost in the culture wars. We're only starting to see a turnaround in this area in the last two years. So after 50 years of steadily losing in the culture wars, for the first time with the U.S. Supreme Court and with, with elections, it appears that Republicans may have found certain culture war issues that are winners, such as the ones that Ron DeSantis happens to have picked, along with if he's tough on crime, that should be another winning issue, and tough on immigration. Most of these fights revolved around Trump, that forced ambitious Republicans, fearful of him, to spend their airtime vigorously defending Trump against whatever outrage was driving the news cycle. Do I read Richard Hanania? Yeah, sometimes. So sometimes he seems great, and sometimes I, I don't follow him. I don't follow his, his thought at all. So he, he bats about 300, as far as I can tell. While simultaneously fluffing his ego. And doing that consigned them to the dreaded role of betas, neutering the credibility of any future break with Trump that might prove politically advantageous. And the chat says America is over, dude. Now, America is going to be even more dominant vis-a-vis -vis the other major powers in the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years than it has been in the previous 50 years. So the 20th century was the American century. The 21st century will also be the American century. America is blessed with 
you know, geographic safety, right? They don't have any enemies on, on the, its borders, uh, great natural resources, rivers to transport goods, and, you know, pretty good demographics compared to countries like China, which are going to approximately halve in size over the next 50 years. The Republican landscape is littered with casualties of this dynamic. Mike Pence's book tour, clearly meant to reintroduce him before 2024, has been a succession of cringeworthy interviews in which the former president tries to project an image of strength and fortitude while ducking questions about the pro-Trump mob that almost killed him on January 6th, 2021. And uh, who is the natural successor to Steve Saylor? Good question. Richard Hanania seems to be positioning himself in this way. The more geopolitical slant, yeah, uh, Megan McArdle, who writes for the Washington Post, uh, Steve uh, Ross Douthat, who seems to recycle Steve Saylor in a more politically acceptable way. Yeah, there are a lot of you know successes to Saylor, but none can can touch him as yet. Is the right finally winning on cultural issues because of how far off the deep end workism has gone, losing even many people on the left? Yeah, I think that's true. Jim Bowden says, he who has the dollar controls the narrative and the power. Dollar talks, BS walks. Well, no, not necessarily. It's only one component of, of power. So people during American elections, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars. They change very few votes. So like all the, all the spending on, on elections doesn't tend to, to change many minds. So uh, corporations may have a lot of money, but uh, they don't necessarily have the same power as Ron DeSantis, who in his battles with corporations so far, Ron DeSantis has always come up the winner, as far as I know. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is campaigning by subtweet, issuing cryptic pronouncements that appear intended to distance him from Trump without risking blowback by mentioning his name. After Trump dined with notorious anti-Semite and white supremacist Nick Fuentes in November, Pompeo tweeted, anti-Semitism is a cancer. Right. So Nick Fuentes is many things. But just summing him up as you know, anti-Semite, white nationalist. That's, that's not fair to the man. He's not like you know, any, anti, any quote-unquote anti-Semite or white nationalist we've seen before. He's more like a pre-World War II traditional you know, Roman Catholic as secretary, I fought to ban funding for anti-Semitic groups. There was no mention of the evening's host. Rather than attempt this awkward straddle, Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, a tireless Trump booster, announced he would forego a run entirely. Back in 2018, when DeSantis was still just a gubernatorial candidate, he too frequently defended Trump on Fox, usually against special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation. Trump rewarded him with a coveted endorsement, vaulting DeSantis past the frontrunner in the Republican primary, Agriculture Commissioner Adam Putnam, and landing him in... So there are some jobs where you have to be ruthless, right? I think I shared that metaphor that, uh, you know, adulthood is like having a countertop with four, four stoves. You know, one, one stove represents friendship, one stove represents health, one represents family, one represents work. Uh, most people only have the strength to pay attention and to light, you know, full bore two, you know, two stoves out, out of the four. So most people choose work and family. But uh, if you really, really want to be the best, usually you can only choose one stove, such as, you know, some men just put work over, over everything else. And often at the neglect of family, friends, and, and health. Tallahassee. Then DeSantis did something radical. He quit defending Trump, yet he still managed to get plenty of TV time. Ron is very good and has always... So oh, my point was that in some professions, you have to be ruthless, right? If you're going to be a professional football player, you have to be ruthless, right? You have to go for you know every advantage that you can get away with. If you're going to succeed in politics and in business, you have to be ruthless. So you enlist people's support and then you drop them when they're no longer useful to you. But if you don't want to be you know, treated in this ruthless fashion, then you have to stay off the professional football playing field. You have to stay out of politics. You have to stay out of 
certain areas of business, all right? You can live in Tenem Sands, you can have a very nice life, and you can avoid the, the ruthlessness that is described in this article. And very good at knowing the things that are going to trigger the media. Brad Harold of... How does 40 quantify the impact of Steve Saylor on American life? The most influential commentator most Americans have never heard of, the most influential pundit, the most influential intellectual. He, he's, he's played a huge role. Uh, he essentially uh, designed or you know, showed a way that uh, Donald Trump turned into victory in, in 2016. Uh, Steve Saylor is an absolute giant. I can't think of anyone who comes close. Former DeSantis campaign manager said in a recent podcast interview, he knows what is going to push people's buttons. DeSantis declined to be interviewed for this article. COVID was early proof of this. DeSantis. Have you read the late Sam Francis? Yeah, I've read some of his, not all, all of his books. It's no longer the politicians who are in charge, but the so-called lobby managerial society who have the real power. People like Amazon, Pfizer, and YouTube says the chat. Well, guess what? Neither politicians nor the corporate elite are in power. You know who is in power? The situation is in power. So Facebook is being chastened by politicians. Right? Social media is being chastened by politicians. Right? Corporations have gone to war with Ron DeSantis and have been defeated. So sometimes politicians have more power than corporations. In some areas of life, in some circumstances, corporations have more power than politicians. Like there's no one entity or one group who is inevitably marked out by the will of heaven to always dominate. Now, sometimes it's a blogger who's most powerful. Sometimes it's a live streamer. Sometimes it's a corporation. Sometimes it's an interested billionaire. Sometimes it's politicians. It depends on the situation. You know what's going to determine you know, who succeeds and who fails? Events, my dear boy. Events. Just cast himself as the scourge of liberal do-gooders and government health care bureaucrats, juxtaposing what he called the free state of Florida with the strictures in place. How is Steve Saylor influential? I don't know anyone in real life who knows his name. Well, he has influenced so many people. Like, he pointed out that the easiest way for Republicans to win presidential elections is to go where the votes are, right? You get an extra one or two percentage points of the white vote instead of diluting the white vote by going after the, the non-white vote, which they are less likely to win anyway. So that's the sailor strategy, which essentially Donald Trump employed. But uh, David Brooks, Ross Douthat, uh, just so many, Megan McArdle, Richard Hananya, so many commentators and pundits uh, seem to be influenced by Steve Saylor. So often the most powerful, influential people are people who almost nobody knows. So I remember when I used to write on the on the, the pornography industry, perhaps the most powerful person at that time was around 2004 and 2007 was Yishai Habari, which almost nobody knew his name. He was an Israeli uh, click broker and almost nobody in the industry knew his name, but he may very well have been the most powerful person in the industry. Almost everywhere else. In April 2020, only weeks into the crisis, he began lifting the statewide lockdown. By September, he'd eliminated many state restrictions and issued... Am I following an up-and-coming thinking just right, Joseph Bronski? No, not yet. Forty is describing how Trump is so influential while playing a clip of how Trumpism doesn't work. Trumpism is influential. Donald Trump reconfigured the Republican Party from pro-free trade to more trade restrictionist. He reconfigured the Republican Party to be more skeptical of immigration. He stopped fighting on losing cultural issues like gay marriage and pushed the Republican Party in a direction of winning on cultural issues. So Ron DeSantis is following in the footsteps of Donald Trump. He just seems to be doing it more effectively, more strategically, and with more discipline. So... Donald Trump mounted a hostile takeover of the Republican Party, unlike anything, I can't think of any parallel in my lifetime. Maybe Charles de Gaulle, what Charles de Gaulle did after World War II, taking power in France, right? That, that, that's probably the closest analogy I can think of to Donald Trump. He mounted a hostile takeover of the Republican Party, and then he won the presidency of the United States, and he united, you know, a 
the, the new type of Republican Party, which has become the party of the working class. So he's shown a way forward. Trump simply lacked the discipline to be particularly effective. Ron DeSantis seems to have the discipline to be effective. An executive order prohibiting local governments from enforcing mask mandates. No Republican besides Trump was more prominent during the pandemic. A more recent example is the DeSantis orchestrated stunt in which 48 asylum seekers from Venezuela were promised jobs and tricked into boarding a state contracted charter flight to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts, where they were then abandoned. A study conducted by Media Matters for America for Bloomberg Businessweek found that over the next month, Fox News ran at least 148 segments that mentioned DeSantis's nasty trick. Here was the... Deceive, sailor, orchestrate, all these things behind the scenes. Deceive, sailor is intellectual. He does have an email list with you know, very elite thinkers on it. Uh, Steve Saylor is friends with people like Steven Pinker. Uh, so Steve Saylor knows a lot of people, converses with a lot of people who he doesn't write about. So it's not orchestrating things behind the scenes, except in the sense of you know, talking about ideas and statistics and you know, the reality of group differences. Santa's formula in a nutshell, create a cultural imbroglio that outrages liberals and that is Trump adjacent, but features himself, not Trump, in the role of alpha male. As DeSantis looks ahead to a possible White House run, there are growing signs his fights with business could give him the most traction. The idea has caught fire with congressional Republicans who plan to haul woke chief executives to Capitol. So a lot of politicians in Europe found that campaigning against the Jews was a good vote-getter, such as the, the mayor of Vienna, who, you know, Adolf Hitler, in large part, uh, you know, shaped himself after. And so, too, you know, many politicians have found running against big business is a great vote-getter. And I think Ron DeSantis is onto something. Donald Trump was so effective in, like, the last month of the 2016 campaign. He was finally on message, you know, discipline. Uh, Ron DeSantis is like that month of Donald Trump. But uh, Ron DeSantis seems to be able to do it day in and day out. Bill for grillings during the new session of Congress. It was hardly an obvious turn for a Yale University-educated Republican with political roots in the Libertarian House Freedom Caucus. Born to a working-class family in Jacksonville in 1978, DeSantis was a star athlete and student at Dunedin High School. So this article is almost halfway through, and it's by a leftist journalist, Dr. Green, and he doesn't lay a glove on Ron DeSantis. So unlike all the other elite journalists who are writing about Ron DeSantis, says in saying that you know, Ron DeSantis doesn't have the personality to be president, that uh, people don't like him, that uh, you know, Ron DeSantis is really bad at you know, retail, interpersonal politics. Joshua Green is kind of stunning in this long article. He doesn't reveal you know, any prominent missteps, mistakes, or you know, killer weaknesses by Ron DeSantis. He became captain of the Yale baseball team. He went on to earn a law degree at Harvard University and served in Iraq with the U.S. Navy Judge Advocate General's Corps. Luke, please list differences in policy between Republicans and Democrats. Okay, Republicans are more immigration restrictionists than Democrats. Republicans generally want lower tax rates than Democrats. Republicans generally opposed to affirmative action. Or Democrats want affirmative action. Democrats are generally woke. Republicans are generally anti-woke. Uh, Republicans are the party of law and order. Democrats are the party frequently opposed to law and order. So there's a pretty significant differences. In 2012, he won an open congressional seat in Florida's sixth district, running as a doctrinaire small government conservative though one plainly bursting with ambition. To launch his bid, he wrote a book, Dreams from Our Founding Fathers, First Principles in the Age of Obama. When he got to Congress, DeSantis co-founded the Freedom Caucus, but his sights were set elsewhere. You could tell from the moment he got here that he had his eye on bigger things, a former Freedom Caucus. And another difference between Republicans and Democrats is that Republicans currently have much more commitment to free speech and to selecting judges who have free speech commitments. 
but Democrats are much more speech restrictionist. And there are elements in, in Australia of the conservative coalition who want uh, you know, fewer hate speech laws, less restrictive hate speech laws than the parties on the left. His colleague recalls. In 2018, DeSantis entered Florida's Republican gubernator. Luke, Luke, the borders, where is the wall? Biden is just the same as Trump. Donald Trump crushed illegal immigration in 2020. He finally crushed it. People said it was impossible. He crushed it. He instituted a rename in Mexico. He replaced hundreds of miles of wall with a superior wall. But more importantly, he implemented policies in Central American countries and with Mexico that basically reduced illegal immigration to negligible levels. This is not being done in 50 years. Donald Trump finally, by 2020, it took him a while to get to get policies that were effective, but Donald Trump had Stephen Miller and he crushed illegal immigration. Then Joe Biden takes office and the floodgates just opened. So compare the number of immigrants in the United States in 2020 when Donald Trump very ably and effectively used COVID as an excuse to close America's borders while Joe Biden takes power, opens up the borders, and we're flooded with illegal immigrants and refugees. Torial primary and his charmed career smacked into a big obstacle, sugar. What does Forty make of the great man theory of history? I'm generally more of a structuralist, right? I generally think that structure is more important than personality, but there occasionally are history transforming characters like Donald Trump. He is you know, unlike uh, anyone probably since Charles de Gaulle. But generally speaking, I don't subscribe to the great man theory of history, but sometimes, yeah, there are world-transforming individuals who are just you know, impossible to comprehend, and they just come along, and they, they shock and surprise us. So Donald Trump, perhaps, is you know, the one that I can think of in my lifetime. Generally speaking, I believe that institutions are the primary thing to, to look at. Military, economic. Political. The sugar industry was probably more in for Adam Putnam than they'd ever been for any politician, says Peter Chorch, publisher of the newsletter Florida Politics. He was their golden child. DeSantis, on the other hand, had voted against sugar subsidies as a congressman. As one of the state's most powerful industries pounded him with millions of dollars in negative ads, many funded by dark money groups, now, I'm increasingly getting more viewers live on Rumble than I am on YouTube. So right now, nine live viewers on Rumble, eight live viewers on YouTube, two live viewers on Odyssey, and no live viewers right now on Twitter. So increasingly getting my viewership from Rumble, much more of a free speech platform than YouTube. Santa struck back branding Big Sugar as a major polluter and aligning himself with the Everglades Foundation, a conservation group co-founded by the billionaire hedge fund manager Paul Tudor Jones, who became a major campaign donor. DeSantis won plaudits for standing up to sugar. The Tampa Bay Times dubbed him the Green Governor, despite his 2% rating from the League of Conservation Voters. And after dispatching Putnam, he narrowly won the governor's race. Then he exacted revenge by forcing everyone on the South Florida Water Board, which was known for doing the industry's bidding, to re And Harold says, so Ron DeSantis is the most collaborative candidate to the institution. He's the institution's candidate. Now, he's the most effective at dealing with institutions. Not that he's the institutional candidate. He seems to be right now, from the little I know, the world's far more complicated than I can possibly fully comprehend. But right now, it seems like Ron DeSantis is more effective at negotiating and strategizing and dealing and at times confronting and at times going to war with institutions than any other politician on America's right of whom I am aware right now. Dying. His battles with business didn't end there. DeSantis's feel for the Trump gestalt had made him a vocal proponent of measures to curb illegal immigration. And he moved to follow through on a campaign pledge to require all public and private employers to screen workers' legal status through the federal E-Verify program. 
this move threatens not only sugar, but also two other major Florida industries that rely on immigrant labor, tourism and construction. The State Chamber of Commerce complained that employers would be unduly burdened by the new requirement, but DeSantis plowed ahead anyway, condemning the use of cheap foreign labor. Although he won accolades on Fox, his victory was limited. The collective forces of the corporate opposition watered down the legislation, so only public employers and their contractors, but not private employers, were required to use E-Verify. DeSantis seemed to take... So, do you... You want to be used by others, or do you want to use others, right? Do you want to be the front man for institutions, or do you want to manipulate and shift institutions in your favor? Ron DeSantis seems to have the high IQ and the strategic good sense and the ruthlessness to be much more currently of a user than a used. He seems to be the top rather than the bottom. This opposition personally. His grudge intensified after the pandemic struck and many Florida corporations refused to endorse his controversial COVID policies. In October 2021, without notifying his own party, he held a press conference to announce a special session of the legislature devoted to penalizing companies that required their workers to be vaccinated. This only deepened the rift. We've always been against government mandating what business can do and can't do, complained the executive director of the Florida Chamber of Commerce. So Ron DeSantis frequently went against the conventional wisdom with regard to COVID and due to the YouTube terms of service, social media terms of service, I, I can't you know, say anything critical of any of the conventional wisdom of public health experts with regard to COVID, but I think I can get away with saying it is more and more uh, an elite media consensus that Ron DeSantis was a lot more right than, than not with, with regard to COVID. Am I, am I allowed to say that? DeSantis was once against mandates like this too. The bullying of private industry, he wrote in Dreams from Our Founding Fathers, was part and parcel of the modus operandi of the Obama administration. Under Obama, the federal government exercised a roving review authority over the business decisions of a number of large companies. A few days later, DeSantis was the keynote speaker at the chamber's annual meeting in Orlando. In a remarkably obstreperous speech that was met mostly with silence, he blasted the rise of woke capitalism. And So this is like Bill Clinton's sister soldier moment. Remember when Bill Clinton attacked this uh, black female rapper and it showed his independence and he wasn't craven to the Democratic Party interest groups. This, this was like Ron DeSantis' sister soldier moment where he took it to the corporations. Issued an unvarnished threat to the state's business elite. If you're using your power as a corporation and you're leveraging that to try to advance an ideology, he warned, I think it's very dangerous for this country and I'm not just going to sit idly by. Former aides and allied strategists say DeSantis was driven by more than personal pique. And currently 12 live viewers on Rumble, 9 live viewers on YouTube. His popularity in Florida, particularly among independents, was steadily rising. And nationally, Republican voters were becoming more attuned to corporate behavior. Like Democrats, they've begun choosing brands that align with their values and morals. So it used to be, obviously, Republicans were the party of the country club. They were the party of big business. And Democrats were the party suspicious of power and suspicious of our major institutions. Now, it's Republicans who are more likely to have an anti-privilege bias. Like it's Republicans who are much more likely to be suspicious of elites, of big institutions, of big business. So big business hasn't you know, completely thrown in with the Democrats. Big business and the defense industry, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, Reagan type of foreign policy, right? The, that crowd and, and the business crowd, their, their votes are still you know, up, up for grabs right now. So Republicans have shifted to becoming the party of the working class. Democrats have shifted to becoming the party of the elite and the underclass. 
Interesting times. As Matt Ostowski, a former Trump campaign strategist and co-founder of Human Behavior, a consumer intelligence company. A conservative backlash against corporate America had been brewing since at least 2019. That summer, the Business Roundtable, the National Association for CEOs of Major Corporations, issued a statement signed by the chief executives of Apple, BlackRock, Disney, and dozens of other big companies declaring that the purpose of the corporation was no longer simply to generate returns, but also to respect the people in our communities and protect the environment by embracing sustainable practices across our businesses. Many conservatives were aghast at what they saw as the nation's top business leaders abdicating the single-minded pursuit of profit, which they believe is the basis of U.S. capitalism. But what really seemed to supercharge Republican animosity towards CEOs and businesses was the corporate response to the murder of George Floyd a year later. The public expressions of solidarity with protests Okay, so it's rare that I get angry. It's rare that while I'm doing a live stream that there's a topic that I regard as sacred so that I just become you know, blind to any nuance. But to the extent that our elites threw in with Black Lives Matter, to the extent that corporate you know, Fortune 500 companies subsidize the terrorist organization Black Lives Matter, leading to additional thousands of murders and additionally thousands of traffic deaths, both for drivers and pedestrians, due to the overwhelming force of the media, our elites, you know, big business, academic elites, teaming up to discourage cops from doing their job. I, this is like the one topic, I think, more than any other, in which I lose my mind, that I lose objectivity, I'm unable to see nuance. It just infuriates me. It infuriates me that big business is subsidizing the terrorist group Black Lives Matter, that their elites effectively ganged up to incentivize cops not to do their job. And so the least law-abiding segments of our society you know, started acting out with predictably disastrous results, you know, destroying millions of lives by, you know, raising the, the crime rate, making more and more people feel unsafe. And, and to think that the Fortune 500 companies were subsidizing this, uh, that, that's the one thing that outrages me. Investors and support for Black Lives Matter, along with Trump's condemnation of these moves, dramatically altered Republican attitudes toward corporate America. Last year, a Gallup tracking poll found that Republicans' unhappiness with the influence of major corporations almost doubled in the year and a half after Floyd's killing. Yeah, can you imagine that our corporations were subsidizing the terrorist group Black Lives Matter, leading to thousands of additional murders? I, I think that's infuriating. And, and Ron DeSantis is absolutely right to call them out for it. I remember when Forty was enraged by the idea of gay sex, said the chat. Never apologize for being a straight white male pissing on Forty stream. Where's the flex bar? I didn't bring it with me to Australia. Ron DeSantis loves Susie Wojcicki. He loves 40, and that's why we still show up to see the public humiliation of, uh, you know, 40 effectively compromising to fit with the terms of service. 40 is a YouTube live streamer. Anything else is a pale imitation. Imagine watching a Torah talk on Rumble. Absolutely nightmarish. Luke Ford, YouTube chat, wrote the current internet terms of service. So, yeah, during... During the, the more heated days of 2018, I think that's when I, I developed a, uh, you know, a guideline, a, a moral code for the chat. And I couldn't believe how effective it was. People have become so much more reasonable and responsible <laughs> after I started posting and, and talking about, you know, a code for, you know, a code of ethics for you know, participating in the chat. From 36% to 68% while Democrats' views remained largely unchanged. So when DeSantis went after Disney a few months following his chamber speech, he wasn't simply striking back at an employer critical of his administration. Yeah, we had such good times in 2018. I remember the excitement of teaming up with Dennis Dale and Professor Casey and Vivian. And my first partner was Vivian. All right, that's 2015. My first partners were Vivian and her sister. 
that was the first live show that I did on YouTube. It was a Torah talk with Vivian, Vivian Veritas and her sister. And then started doing regular shows with Vivian, which then transitioned to doing regular shows with Professor Casey. It's now Godwin Podcast. And then adding Dennis Dale to the mix. And then Ricardo started berating Dennis Dale. Ricardo comes on the street and Ricardo is a Absolute streaming star. I think that's March of 2018. Then Ricardo becomes my daily co-host. And you know, we're, we're DMing back and forth on Twitter. Like Ricardo is such an amazing co-host because he has just like a visceral feel for things and emotional honesty that I do not have. But then you know, Ricardo had to dial it back. Then I was lucky enough to discover Kevin Michael Grace. Those were heady days bringing Kevin onto the stream along with Dennis Dale and Casey and uh, the, the, the reasonable guy from Oklahoma, the, the, the respecter. Uh, like we had a whack pack with, with you know, Babs, you know, Babylonian Hebrew. Like we had such good times back in 2018, those heady days of internet blood sports. Had Richard Spencer, Kevin McDonald on the stream, you know, Eric Stryker, Mike Enoch, you know, some, you know, transsexual leftist uh, skilled at, at rhetoric who, you know, eventually got exposed for claiming to be black when, when she wasn't. Oh, man. And then meeting Kyle. And then, wow, Kyle is amazing. I got to I gotta give Kyle his own hour of the show. So start bringing, you know, Kyle on at 4 p.m. West Coast time. They're bringing Kevin Michael Grace on, I don't know, something like, uh, they bring, you know, half an hour or an hour later, or those epic battles between Kyle and Kevin and Ricardo and sometimes Casey. And then we had that, that woman in Australia who came on the screen, the, the show, and uh, she was she was dying. and uh, But she was like a regular viewer of the show. I mean, and... The, the discussion got to be so much more wide open, but then in late 2018, YouTube imposed a particularly draconian terms of service, which I have internalized. And so, yeah, you can tune in here to watch me humiliate myself by internalizing YouTube's terms of service. It's no longer just something that is imposed upon me from the outside. Tender moment, I love seeing 40 grin like a little boy and the thought of better days, the nostalgia hits me the same way. Pure Judaism was better instead of all this pillfall. Did the stream go down the Jew hole or did you get sucked down the Jew hole? Be honest. I just thought we had a lot of great streams in from 2015 to 2018. And then we've had, I'll be honest, we've had fewer great streams since 2018. The, the show, generally speaking, was at its best in 2018. Remember we had Nazis talking to Jews, like we had some pretty stimulating conversations. Those were, those were good times. So when DeSantis went after Disney a few months following his chamber speech, he wasn't simply striking back at an employer critical of his administration. He was seizing a leading role in a national drama that's become increasingly central to Republican politics. By normal political standards, a governor attacking his state's marquee employer would be an act of unimaginable recklessness. And Pigger says Odyssey will be number one in two years. I love Odyssey. We are streaming live on Odyssey right now. Rumble are all dedicated Republicans. Odyssey are dedicated Libertarians. Bring back the magic, Luke. That's very self-aware of you, Luke. Call it Gavad. Congratulate. Yeah. So almost everything goes better with other people. My solo streams are nowhere as good as when we had a whack pack on there. So I need to bring back the whack pack. But you know what? There's something that's more important to me than doing good live streams. There's something more important to me than producing compelling content. There's something that's even more important to me than bringing great characters onto the streams. And that's not damaging people. And I came to realize in 2018 that most people probably better off not live streaming, that I need to be much more selective about the type of people I bring on the show. And that comes at a tremendous cost of spontaneity and the compelling nature of the show, but it's more moral, it's more ethical, it's showing more concern for the well-being of other people. So people don't tend to think of the consequences of live streaming, and there are so many possible negative consequences that only a tiny, tiny, tiny 
number of people are really cut out for live streaming. For the overwhelming majority of people coming on a show like this is not in their self-interest. And so I don't push it on people, right? I try to be very selective. I you know, cut way back on my uh, stroll streams because I just think it's antisocial. People don't like it when someone's strolling down the street doing, doing a live stream. And, and I realized that so many of the entertaining characters that I brought on the show, it was not good for them. It didn't bring out the best in them. So there's something that's more important to me than producing a great live stream, and that's trying to produce a good life for myself, for other people, and not, not damaging people unnecessarily who are naive about the consequences of coming on a show and talking about intense topics. So there are values that are higher to me than producing compelling content. There are values that are higher to me than my personal success. There are values that are higher to me than getting you know, a large number of viewers. I found that, you know, obviously, Internet Blood Sports is the best way to get a large number of viewers, but that's frequently really bad for people, and I sometimes just don't like the effect on me, and I don't like the possible effect on, on viewers. So often the most compelling content, the most entertaining content, the most lucrative content, the content that produces the most views is the content that's worst for you. And higher IQ content, the more morally and intellectually demanding content, which gets 1% of the viewership of the trashy uh, you know, internet blood sports content, uh, at least you feel good about it, and to the extent that it has an effect on someone, it's either going to be neutral or, or positive. So there are higher values in the world than producing compelling live streams. Piggy says you're damaging more by not expressing your true self. Well, I think I'm largely expressing my true self. I just have to use more euphemisms due to the terms of service. So it's like playing tennis with the net up versus playing tennis with the with the net down. So I really like bringing people on and you know going back and forth in arguments and you know people from all sorts of different streams of life, but that is just so painful. It's so disconcerting to realize that this was really bad for many of them. It was not in their self-interest. They had to be much more selective. It's really disconcerting to me to realize that 99% of people who want to come on the stream, it's not going to be good for them. It's not going to be good for the audience. It's not going to be good for the stream. So generally speaking, the people who most want to come on the stream, it's not good for them or the stream or for the audience and, or for me. And the people who'd be best to bring on the stream tend to be the people most reluctant to come on the stream. So let's have a look at... YouTube chat. Brave of you to say that after you destroyed so many lives before. No, I didn't destroy their lives. I provided a forum, an opportunity for them to destroy their own lives, and I don't give myself even 20% of the demerits for that. Like, if someone comes on this show and destroys their life, like, I would hold myself less than 5% responsible. But still, I'm not going to, I'm not going to take that as, as easily and cavalierly as I did before. I'm not responsible for what anyone says on this stream. Right? That's their responsibility. I only have yeah, a small amount of responsibility in that I provide a forum if, if they don't self-destruct here and they want to be on live streams, I'll find other live streams that they're going to self-destruct on. So I don't want to take over responsibility. I want to take just an accurate amount of responsibility. Please give us your psychologist's <laughs> contact information. <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember Skip Bayless, the 40s of Skip Bayless, the old ride. <laughs> Post games for, for Andrew Anglin and Sargon. Yeah, that was magic. That, that was great. I'd come home I sometimes after working 12 hour days and I hadn't even gotten to see the, the stream that I was going to, that we were all going to comment on. But I just come back with, you know, let's do a post game on the on Andy Wosky's show or JF Garapi's show or the uh, whatever debate had taken part place that evening and I was you know I think I you know open to many many different points of view so we got to have some pretty lively and entertaining discussion yeah let's read the forbidden book it'll be fun yeah that's that's my attitude see if, if someone reads a forbidden book and it destroys them I don't believe the book is primarily responsible 
and I don't believe that I'm responsible for suggesting that they should read it for fun. It just so happens that uh, sometimes some self-destructive personalities are going to use that forbidden book as the opportunity to implode. And I don't feel great about that, but I don't take primary responsibility for it either. I provided, I opened up a door. That person walked in the door, then he ran out, found the window, and he jumped off the 10th floor. I'm sorry that happens. That's not on me but I don't feel good about it. So I want to do everything I can to minimize the chances of that happening. Okay. By normal political standards, a governor attacking his state's marquee employer would be an act of unimaginable recklessness. But DeSantis had read the landscape correctly. As corporations have gotten bigger and bigger, their local ties have weakened. So, so I don't believe that I never did damage to anyone. There's a big difference between... On the one hand, I never did damage to anyone, which I don't believe. And the opposite attitude is, you know, I damage so many people by giving them the opportunity to speak on the show, right? I reject both extremes. I have a, I provided a forum where some people self-destructed. And as a result of those experiences, I became much more reluctant to... You know, bring people on if I thought that there was a significant chance that they would self-destruct. But I'm not responsible for their self-destruction. On the other hand, as a morally aware, psychologically aware, socially aware person, I don't want to be doing a show where people are destroying themselves. So it's kind of a middle path between the two extremes of I never damaged anyone to I am responsible for other people self-destructing on the show. I think there is a middle path I, I can't help but damage people as I go through life, even when I'm not on air. Like, we all bruise people, right, when we interact. I want to minimize the amount of damage I do. When I do do you know, significant needless damage, I want to face up to it and try to make amends. So I've had a history of being you know, very selfish in my pursuit of uh, pleasure, my pursuit of women. I have been very selfish in my pursuit of attention. So I've been disruptive to individuals and to groups. I uh, have not exercised sufficient self-control. So I've you know, disrupted social occasions, dinners, uh, Torah talks, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, parties, gatherings, one-on-one -on -one conversations by saying things that are offensive. So in my old age, I'd like to think I'm increasingly tuning into the appropriate situation of the person who I'm conversing with so that I can bring things down so that I'm not needlessly humiliating or offending people. Because when I needlessly offend people, I am harming them. And a therapist has said, when you offend someone, you're harming them. As Brad Coker, a pollster in Florida. It used to be if you were a corporation based in Pittsburgh, even if you weren't a steel company, you had your finger on the pulse of what Pittsburgh voters cared about. Now that's gone. The big secret about Disney is that Floridians don't go to Disney World. They see Disney as a California corporation. When Coker went into the field with his survey team, he found no drop in DeSantis's poll numbers. It hasn't hurt him at all. Quite the contrary. In late October, the Florida Chamber of Commerce gathered once more for its annual meeting in Orlando. Dinner is ready. I gotta go. Bye bye.